Okay, let me begin by uh, thanking Don Pfaff and Terry Sanowski for uh, putting together um, what promises to be a, an extremely interesting meeting, and thanks to all of you for coming here. Uh, I don't presume to provide an answer, let alone a definition to this question, uh, for at least two simple reasons. One is that I don't think we know enough uh, yet, uh, and the other thing is that it's not one thing, theory of mind, uh, I think, uh, and I hope that you will think at the end of these talks, is many things. And so questions about uh, whether or not it's unique to humans, I think, need to be changed into questions of which parts might be unique to humans. And to do that, we need to make distinctions, which is primarily what my talk is about, to clarify uh, theory of mind, to begin to be able to think about it and use it scientifically, we need to uh, carve it up into pieces and investigate those pieces. And so if you just do very crudely what I did on this slide here, and you simply plot the number of publications on the y-axis versus time on the x-axis of uh, publications that have the phrase theory of mind in their title, you get the plot that you see here. And it makes a couple of important points. First of all, it should go without saying that if you use synonyms, mentalizing, mind reading, and certainly if you looked for the topic, any paper on the topic of theory of mind, whether or not it has that in its title, uh, you would find a much larger number of papers, absolutely, but I think the patterns would look very similar. And there's two important points here to make. One is that people did start thinking about this some time ago. So there's papers going back quite a ways, um, there are papers in philosophy of mind on this topic, and there's a large literature primarily from comparative psychology, studying uh, apes and dogs and many other species, some of which you'll hear about today, and from developmental psychology, studying infants and children, which you'll also hear about today. Um, those studies of theory of mind had a curious feature, those developmental psychology and comparative psychology studies, which is that they were focused less on asking what is theory of mind or how can we understand it than on asking do apes have it, do infants have it, at what point in evolution or in development does it arise. What happened recently and what sort of you can see of this sort of inflection bump from 2000 on at the far right end of the scale and what's responsible for the explosion of recent papers on this topic is that it's been infused with neuroimaging. And so there's now a wealth or starting to be a wealth of studies that, uh, that are about the brain that tell us something about theory of mind as well. And here's some more about that from Jason Mitchell. But so what is theory of mind? Theory of mind, very simply, is thinking about people. Um, it's more specific than that, so it's not just you thinking about me up here with a blue shirt or something, but it's you thinking about what's inside my head, that is, thinking about other people's minds, thinking about their thoughts, about their intentions, about their feelings and emotions. And uh, that's illustrated in this little cartoon here uh, from one of Andy Whiten's early books. Um, probably the boy on the left here doesn't necessarily have theory of mind yet, except perhaps about his own mind and what he intends to do. The girl in the middle has just sort of a prototypical theory of mind. She's thinking about what the boy is thinking about. So she's representing something that is in the boy's head, whether it's veridical or not. And the boy on the far right has even more of a theory of mind. He's thinking not only about the contents of what the girl's thinking about, but derivatively also what the boy on the left is thinking about. So I like this cartoon. It makes a couple of important points. 
one question you could begin to ask right away is, well, what is this thinking about minds, this theory of mind, what is the format of that representationally? And in this cartoon, it's pictures. There's little images in these bubbles here. Everything that I've told you has been in language, using words. And so you could imagine a number of different formats. Maybe some of them depend on language. Maybe some of them don't. If we can begin to answer that question, you can also see that it could speak to the question of which parts of theory of mind might be unique to humans. To the extent that it involves language, it's unique to humans. To the extent that it doesn't, it might not be. There's another important point that's made here, which is that theory of mind seems not to be an all-or-none kind of thing necessarily. It's sort of graded, and arguably the boy on the far right has more of a theory of mind or a more complex theory of mind than does the girl in the middle. So there seems to be some kind of hierarchy to this. And again, we could imagine that, well, perhaps very sophisticated, complex, at the top of the hierarchy, theory of mind abilities are unique to humans, but perhaps some simpler ones we share in common with other animals. So let me uh, outline some of the distinctions that people have made in the literature and that I think are important to keep in mind as we think about the talks um, for the rest of the day. So... Uh, one uh, simple way of thinking about theory of mind is uh, as just an ability, a psychological competence to predict people's behavior. So lots of animals, most animals, maybe nearly all animals have this. All animals are able to make some kinds of predictions about other animals' behavior. When I go into, we have two cats at home, when I go into the cat room in the morning, the cats come bolting out into the house from having been penned up all night, but they turn around and they look at me and they see me walk, continue to walk into the cat room towards the food bowls and they make a hairpin turn and come racing back in towards the food bowls. They're able to tell from the direction of my movement that I'm about to give them some kind of a food. Now, they probably don't have concepts from, for, for that. They certainly aren't thinking in terms of language and their behavior seems fairly rigid and is probably based on lots of associations. But nonetheless, they have an ability that looks kind of like mind reading. They're able to infer something about my intention to give them food. Now, in, the, in our case, we're able to combine this with thinking. So we think about this, and we have concepts and, of course, words for this. So, as I mentioned, aspects of that are arguably unique to humans. And then what we want to do is to find the processes, note that this is plural, so there will be multiple, the processes that are responsible for these um, abilities. And then finally, this has been infused, as I mentioned recently, uh, with information about where in the brain, where and how in the brain this happens from neuroimaging data, and that's helping to inform how we think about one, two, and three. And these all have different words associated with them, and this is not by any means a sort of unique mapping here, but if you look at the literature, you find words that refer to each of these four things uh, as denoted up here, folk psychology for the first, mentalizing or mind reading for the second. And I want to say a little bit about three and four, which is that people uh, have, uh, to some extent, thought about two very different uh, kinds of processes and associated with them two different brain systems that subserve mind reading. One is based more on simulation, more on mirroring, has to do a lot more with emotions in many cases, seems more automatic, might be shared more in common with other animals. And the second seems much more effortful, uh, may require language to some extent, and seems much more unique to primates or perhaps humans. 
And so let me just outline, at least intuitively, what those two types of processes and systems are. And again, this isn't anybody working in the field here would find lots of details to disagree with, with uh, on this. But I think in broad terms, they outline uh, two important distinctions. So one is you, and for that matter, other dogs, looking at dogs with these kinds of postures, are able to make inferences about what these dogs are feeling or intending. So on the far right, uh, another dog looking at this dog would know that the dog is angry and might attack and would guide its behavior accordingly. Now, a dog seeing this in another dog wouldn't have necessarily concepts for this and certainly wouldn't have language. Human dog owners seeing this in their pet would, and you would, rightly or wrongly, uh, impute emotional states to these animals from watching them. Now, what's interesting about this, and as Charles Darwin pointed out in his book from which these illustrations are taken, is that this is very continuous also with the, observe, uh, with the behavior that you observe in other people. We also pick up other people's body postures and their facial expressions. And if somebody is crouching down in pain, or slouching and crying, or standing up and laughing, again, you infer very quickly that they're in pain, depressed, or happy. So what characterizes all these examples is uh, that they seem pretty effortless. It seems like you pick this up immediately. You sort of mirror what you see in the dog or the other person. Uh, you don't have to put much effort into it. It seems very automatic. and can't, In fact, it seems like you can't help but feel something about the dog or the other person from watching them. It's often concerned with emotions. And so this is one system uh, that has to do with mirroring, simulation, is often related but not exclusively to emotions. And so all of these words refer to one class of processes, let's call them, uh, for uh, mind reading. There's a second one which uh, is very different, and I'll give sort of an ext uh, extreme example of it here uh, to warm all of you up, wake you up if you've had too heavy a lunch. Imagine playing the following game, okay? We're going to pick a number between 1 and 100. So each of you could imagine or could write down a number between 1 and 100 on a piece of paper. We're going to collect all those in a basket and take the average, divide them by 2, and that's the winning number. What would you write down? So think about it for a minute. Uh, if you want to win this, uh, what number would you write down? Imagine everybody in the room is doing this. Well, you might say, well, what are people going to pick? Um, we're going to pick randomly. Some people are going to pick one. Some people are going to pick 50, 80, 100. It sounds like the average should be around 50 in the middle. If I divide that by 2, it's 25, so I should write down 25, and that would be the winning number. Now, if you think about it, so that would be sort of the very simplest thing you could do. It doesn't really involve theory of mind, except insofar as you're vaguely aware that other people are also picking these numbers. If you do this, you might reflect on this for a second and say, well, wait a minute. These people look pretty smart. They're probably as smart as I am. I pick 25. Maybe they'll pick 25, too, in which case I should pick 12. And, of course, you could keep going, and you could say, oh, they pick 12, so I should pick 6, 6, and 3, and so forth, and indeed, the Nash equilibrium of this little exercise converges down to zero. This is a, an example that my colleagues from behavioral economics are fond of, um, fond of using. So this illustrates this sort of hierarchical level. That there could be steps of thinking. It's effortful. You're thinking about what other people are doing, what other people are, are, what's going on in other people's minds. And it's competitive and strategic in this example. So it's a very different kind of example 
than looking at someone expressing an emotion or looking at the dog postures. And these kinds of processes are referred to more as mentalizing or theory of mind. So these broad, two broad systems then, one uh, more automatic and effortless, in many cases concerned with emotions that we may share more in common with other animals, and one that's much more strategic, often competitive, very effortful, um, and that may be more unique to humans. As I said, these are extreme examples, and there may be things in the middle, and of course, in many cases, they both come online concurrently. What's uh, interesting is that in the last decade or so, uh, pretty more recently than that, really, neuroscientists have found two brain networks that also seem to correspond to these two classes of processes that I just mentioned to you. One for mirroring, shown on the left here. You'll hear a lot more about that later on in talks, and one for mentalizing or theory of mind on the right. And uh, you needn't pay detailed attention to exactly where these colored blobs are. What these pictures illustrate are regions of brains. These brains are inflated, and that's where they have these funny patterns on them. Regions of brains that are activated when people engage in this kind of mirroring or simulation or when they engage in, the, in, the, in this mentalizing. About the only two important points to make about this is that these two networks, at least to some extent, appear to be distinct. So just like the sets of psychological processes, to some extent, appear to be distinct, so do the brain networks subserving them, and that they consist of more than one place in the brain. So they're a network of many distributed parts of the brain, exactly which is still under debate. But this is, you could consider this a sort of preliminary view of those networks. And then you can have conclusions, as in this meta-analysis from the paper that I cite here, uh, that say what I just said, that indeed there seem to be two distinct systems that operate on different kinds of input to make inferences about other people. So there are a number of open questions, and I was motivated in coming up with these uh, by this book, uh, a very nice background, general background book by Ian Apperley, Mind Readers, that I cite at the bottom, uh, one that I mentioned at the outset is about the nature of the representations for theory of mind. Does it require language? Um, what, what, what is the nature of those kinds of representations, and are they special to theory of mind? And that certainly will inform our understanding of the extent to which it's, it might be unique to humans. We want to then understand the processes that constitute it, and again, we want to understand what are the properties of those processes. So the ones that I outlined to you, some are effortful and volitional, some are fast and automatic, and we can make those distinctions. And then finally, we want to map those onto the brain, and we want to understand what the architecture is between those two processes. So does one always happen before the other? Do they happen concurrently? Uh, And importantly, how does this relate to the rest of your thinking? So in all the examples that I've told you, you need to be able, for instance, to get input through your perceptual system about another person. So if you close your eyes right now, you can't do theory of mind by watching people because you can't see them. Well, that seems silly in a way. Of course, theory of mind has to, has to interface with perception, but it doesn't seem like perception is sort of constitutive of it. If I close my eyes, my theory of mind abilities don't go away. On the other hand, other things like being able to hold something in memory, being able to pay attention, those seem like they're more necessary for theory of mind and maybe more constitutive. Language would be another example. So one question is, which other aspects of cognition 
are sort of inputs to theory of mind and which might interface more closely with it or even be partly constitutive of it. And again, if we can get a traction on those questions, we can begin to answer the extent to which human theory of mind might be different from that ability in other animals. Um, one interesting finding that I think Michael Arbib will tell you more about is that indeed mirroring ability, uh, well, certainly the neural substrates for it uh, have been found and were first found in uh, animals other than humans. So there are parts of the brain that respond in monkeys to mirroring, to watching other people do something that you would also do yourself. As illustrated here, there's a flattened representation of a monkey brain on the left and fMRI data from a human brain on the right. So one question is if there's a corresponding mentalizing ability in monkeys as well, or whether that is unique in humans and why that might be. Let me finish here um, by outlining at one sort of um, a guess or conjecture of one component of theory of mind that I think might be unique to humans. And part of this is informed by functional imaging data. So if you take this system, this mentalizing system in the brain that's activated in fMRI studies that I mentioned to you, it's activated also when you recollect episodes from your past, when you think about in detail what you will be doing tonight or tomorrow. Um, and so it seems like there's a system that is broader than just theory of mind. And the question is, what do all these things have in common? What does it have in common to recollect events from your past, to think about the future, or to think about another person's mind? Well, they all have in common the ability to generate a conscious experience that's not driven just sort of by sensory input. So I think one ability that humans have is the ability to use representations in a format that contributes to the contents of your conscious experience, but to manipulate this very flexibly to find out about things that happened in the past, to plan things in the future, or to find out about things that, that are happening in somebody else's mind. So let me finish by summarizing on my last slide here. So we infer people's thoughts and intentions and beliefs and feelings, their internal mental states all the time. So in that sense, all of us mind read. That's uncontentious. The processes by which we achieve these are many, and so we need to figure out which they are. It's not a monolithic ability. And it will turn out, I think, that some of these processes are shared in common with other species, and some are unique to humans. You'll hear a lot more about that today. It's still very much in progress. And then finally, they're being identified and mapped onto the brain in neuroimaging studies. One consequence of all of this, then, if you look at this, is um, especially three and four. The question is, how do these inform our original question? What is theory of mind? Well, I think they'll do it in a couple of ways, and in particular, they'll make us think that our original sense of mind reading, the original concepts that we had to work with, uh, were sort of ill-posed to begin with, and we need to redefine the way that we think about these processes. So one thing that I think we all want to do, at the, or want to uh, have at the end of this symposium, right now all of you have some intuitive understanding of mind reading. Parts of it are definitely wrong. And so what you want to ask yourself, which parts are wrong, and how can I revise this and ask the question again and then move forward with future studies to clarify that new question? And let me end there. Thanks, Don.